our Old Testament lesson. It comes from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. which can be found on page 759 in our Pew Bibles, or 1452 in a large print. Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for the ways in which you have been working throughout the past through everything that has ever existed, and for the promises that you have made to continue working in and through your people, to be with them, um, not only in the past, not only today, but forever. God, we pray that you would help us to continue to trust you, to trust your word, to trust who you are. God, that we would know life with you through Jesus. We pray that today as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that it would encourage our hearts, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would be changed evermore into the people that you created us to be, that we would live lives of praise and worship for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people... What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, applauded and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And then the response. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Turning then to Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. It should be found on page 848 in uh, the Pew Bibles and 1623 in the large print. Luke 14, starting in verse 7. And actually, if we pick up verse 1, we get to see where Jesus is at the time. Uh, this is one Sabbath when Jesus went, in, went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. He was being carefully watched. So that's what's going on. Then verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. 
When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There's that word, righteous. You know, Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So the question is, do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is that something we really desire to have? To be righteous? To live rightly in the presence of God? If we desire that, it says we will be filled. But we need to make sure that we have that that desire in the right place as well. Because it's certainly not living rightly so that then God will say, okay, this one's good enough, I'll save them. It doesn't work that way. It's all by grace. But, that's why, by the way, as you'll, you may have noticed, as you read through a lot of the letters in the New Testament, you read through the book of Romans, for example, or the book of Ephesians, there are a lot of statements in there of, here's how you should live. Do these things. There's a lot of that. And almost none of it comes at the beginning of the book. It's always at the end. Why is it at the end? Because what comes first is always, let me tell you what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And sometimes it backs up to the very beginning of the creation. Let me tell you how God has been working from the, before you were ever born. Let me tell you what all God has done for you. So that by the time you get to the things that, okay, now here's how you live, there's no way you can take that as, okay, here's what I'm going to do for God. This is what I'm going to do to uh, make him owe me somehow. That he will now have to, uh, he has to save me because look what all I've done for him. No, there's none of that. Because you've already covered so much of what God has done for us. They can never be repaid. I love that line in Micah that we just read where it says, you know, what can I give him? What about about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Isn't that great? I mean, I like olive oil, but that's a bit much. 10,000 rivers of olive oil. It says, even if you had all of that, he said, all right, God, I will give you all this. He said, so? (laughs) 
I have the whole universe. Did you forget that? There's nothing that you can give to me that's going to make that different. That's going to change your standing with me that way. There's nothing we can give to God to put him in our debt. Nothing. So with that in mind, why else might we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why would we want to live that way? I will tell you this. Um, there are a couple reasons. One, if you have been raised in church, you've been raised with Christian parents, you've always grown up with these teachings of this is the right way to live, this is what God wants for you, this may seem like, yeah, I, I get that already. For people who have been not raised in church, who have no idea about the way that God says to live, and who have been raised in a completely different way, and then come to know Jesus later in life, and that hunger and thirst for righteousness is there. Because they say, oh my goodness, I had no idea you could live this way. I had no idea that this kind of life was available. Tell me more. How else can I live? Right with God. <clears throat> so there's that, that reason. Because the way that God uh, set things up, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we need better than anything else. And when he says, this is the way you should live, it's because that's the way that life works best. But there's also an even more important way, reason to live righteously and to hunger and thirst for that righteousness. And that is for worship. In Romans 12, which is on this page. Nope, it's on this page. In Romans 12, uh, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This living a life of response to what all God has done. This is chapter 12 of Romans, not chapter 1. After everything that God has done for you, this then is how you live in response to that. And I would encourage you to read through the rest of Romans 12, which we will not do right now, but only for the sake of time, because it is very good. And we see something similar in Hebrews chapter 13, where after everything else, in the end of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, it says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that's in contrast, by the way, to all the created things that at some point are going away. All those things are changeable. All those things are temporary. It says, but it's all going away. But we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're receiving a kingdom that is eternal and nothing can destroy it. And so it says, since we're receiving that kind of kingdom, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And we talked last week about how that means living not just one hour a week, not just in devotional times, but the whole of our lives in worship to God. So what does that look like? How do you live that way? Well, it comes back to that hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But what sort of things 
does that involve? He tells us. Hebrews chapter 13, verses uh, 1 through 14. It says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And to those who are mistreated, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the the disgrace he bore. For here... We do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. That's where we'll stop for today, and next week we'll actually finish off the whole book of Hebrews and then start a whole new series on Easter Sunday. But we stop there today because this whole list of things that he just said to do seems a bit random. Like, oh, I forgot to tell you some things in the whole rest of my letter. Let me just throw them in right now. But there actually is a reason that he gives them this way. And this part at the end that you probably want to just skip over because it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with our current experience. You know, we read the part that says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. And we go, okay, yeah, I think I can know how to do that. But when it talks about... Um, the high priest carrying the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering and the bodies burned outside the camp. And we go, yeah, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Skipping, skipping. (laughs) Don't do that. Because that's actually what makes the rest of this make sense. Why we would live this way and what we can expect when we live this way. Here's the deal. The writer of the Hebrews is making a clear distinction between the things of Judaism and the things of Jesus. Now, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that the, uh, the Ten Commandments go away. Jesus actually lived out the Ten Commandments and said, look, this is the way you're supposed to live. But as far as the sacrifices, as far as the tabernacle, as far as the temple goes, those go away because of Jesus, because he fulfilled them. And what we've been talking about throughout the book of Hebrews, there have been a couple themes. One of them is Jesus is better than all those things. Don't go back to that. 
in these times of suffering, in times of persecution, when you're starting to say, well, it's, it's the Jesus part that everybody wants me to be quiet about, so maybe I will. Maybe I'll just be quiet about that, and I will just do the other things. Maybe God will be fine with that. I'll go back to the temple. I'll go back to the tabernacle. I'll continue to offer the sacrifices. And the writer of the Hebrews consistently says, don't do that. Don't do that anymore. Even though that's probably going to mean additional suffering, additional persecution. Jesus lived a perfect life, and yet he died outside the city. He was um, killed on the cross outside the city, and every bit of that, as you read through the Old Testament, says that is what happens to people who are cursed of God. You have these priests who go in to the most holy place, into the very presence of God, and they offer these sacrifices so that they can come into the presence of God. And then you have Jesus outside the city, not in the temple, not even in the city, but on the outside where all the garbage goes, where the criminals go, where those people who are cursed by God go. And he's hung on a cross to die. You can see why people who say, oh, I think he's God, would have been laughed at and would have been, um, would have been persecuted. People saying, don't worship that. No. Let's go back to the temple. Come on. But the writer of the Hebrews is saying, he died outside the city because he was taking on the curse of God. But it's the one that we deserved. And it's the one that made possible uh, our being in the very presence of God. And apart from that, we have no hope. And in fact, all the animals that were being sacrificed, all they did was point to Jesus. That we would go to him. But he says in order to go to him, that means we also have to take on the disgrace that he bore. Because it it meant for them back then that they had to go outside of Judaism. They couldn't keep going to the temple. They couldn't keep going through those ritual practices. And when they quit doing those things, their friends and their neighbors would say, what's wrong with you? Come on. Don't go doing that. Don't keep up with this Jesus thing. You've gotten a little bit fanatical. Let's just go on back to the temple, offer the sacrifices. All will be good again. He said, when you go outside the temple, or when you go outside of Judaism, when you start worshiping Jesus, then what comes with that, what comes with the life that he lived, is also some of the disgrace that he bore. So the question is, are we willing to go there? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, uh, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We would like to change that verse, wouldn't we? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be blessed. (laughs) But it doesn't say blessed. It says persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's what it's talking about when it says going outside the city. Outside of the camp. This is what happened with Jesus. It says if we go to him, we got to go outside too. 
For the people that this was originally written to, that meant you go outside of Judaism. Because what Jesus has done is more important. It's better than all that went before, and he is the only way we go to him. For us today, that's probably not the issue. There are very few of us, probably none of us here, who are really, really tempted to go worship at a Jewish tabernacle and offer animal sacrifices. Probably not. But we are also called to go outside the city in the sense of going outside the things that are temporary and holding on to that which lasts, even if it means persecution, even if it means people saying, what's wrong with you? Or you've gotten a little fanatical. But to go to Jesus, whatever that's going to mean. And let me tell you, so that's what then makes sense of these first um, these first exhortations of uh, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. In other words, we treat everybody as though we're all part of the same family. I don't love you because you can give me something back or what you can do for me because we're part of the same family. And you just, that's what you do. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Right? Now, why would you show hospitality to strangers? That's what Jesus was talking about that we just read from Luke when he says, when you throw a, uh, a banquet, don't invite the people who can pay you back. Because if you do, you're not really giving to them. You're not really giving to me. You're really giving to yourself. You're making an investment in a future meal for yourself. So don't do that. That's the way the rest of the world lives. When you invite people, invite the people who can't pay you back. When you have a stranger show up who needs to be taken care of, welcome them. Take care of them. And even mentions or refers then to uh, Abraham and to Lot, who both had heavenly visitors. They didn't know it. They were just strangers that showed up. But they welcomed them. So that's the way to live. And then it says, continue to remember those in prison. Not just those who come to you, but even those who are suffering, who are in prison and who are mistreated. It says, imagine and put yourself in their place. Put yourself in their shoes. And you know, if you were suffering that way, if you were in prison like that, you would want somebody to be caring for you, to be praying for you, to be helping you in any way they could. So when you know of people like that, remember them. This, by the way, is something, all these things you may notice are not new commands, but they are th- and not, not things that the people weren't doing. It keeps saying, continue to do these things. Keep on doing these things. They knew them, but the temptation is to fall away and to quit doing them. Keep on doing them. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That is not the way the rest of the world lives. Kind of ties back in with the keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Which, by the way, when we love each other as family members, that does not mean that we love each other as husband and wife. That's different. And that's what he makes 
clear in verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all. So if, um, if you are married, you don't go looking outside of marriage for the things that should only be in marriage. And if you are single, you don't go um, flirting with married people. That's not how that works. Marriage should be honored by all. A marriage bed kept pure. This is the way that God has uh, for the holy lives of his people. But also, when it says keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, it doesn't just mean don't love each other as husband and wife, but it also doesn't mean that we uh, approve of everything that everybody's doing. I love my children a lot. I do not always approve of what they're doing. (laughs) And I hope... I hope they understand the first one as much as they are aware of the second one. (laughs) Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. This is tied together with the issue of marriage. As though you're greedy for money, greedy for... Um, other partners besides your spouse. But it's also tied to two other things. The love of money is also tied to God's presence and fear. It says we should be content with all we have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence... The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The love of money. Money is one of those things. One of those temporary things. This, you should be hearing echoes of Jesus saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth because that stuff doesn't last. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. Is it okay to get money? Yes. Is it okay to use money? Yes. Is it okay to give money? Yes. Is it okay to love money? No. Is it okay to trust in money above all else? Absolutely not. In fact, if you do trust in money, what you'll find is fear. As soon as you start noticing fluctuations in the market or economic distress on the horizon... Fear sets in. Maybe this money isn't as secure as I thought. But, if you're not holding on tightly to the things of this world, but you're holding on tightly to the things of God, then when economic situations happen, well, I'm not going to fear because God has said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. My money may go. My health may go. But God's not going to go. He's not going to forsake me. He's not going to leave me. He's my helper, and therefore I don't have anything else to fear. It says, what can uh, mere mortals do to me? And if you answer that rhetorical question, you answer that, what can mere mortals do to me? The answer is they can do a lot. People can, um, can make fun of you. They can steal your possessions. They can uh, fire you from your job. They can torture your body. They can actually even kill you. But as Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill your body and then do no more. That's it. 
In other words, that's all they can do is kill you. You're like, well, that's pretty bad. But there is not a person alive who can send you to hell. Do you know that? There is no one who can do that. If Jesus says, you are mine, and I have redeemed you with my own blood, then the worst they can do is kill your body, but you're still with Jesus. And you will still have life again. And so we don't have to fear what is the worst that people can do to us, right? This, this is the kind of thing that keeps those who are enduring persecution around the world right now strong. Trusting not in money, trusting not in political powers, but trusting in God through it all. And then it says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider their outcome, the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you? Do you notice this is in past tense? As though these leaders are not around anymore? These people that he's writing to who are tempted to give up on the faith because of the persecution they're facing? And he says, consider the outcome of the way of life that your leaders who are no longer with you faced. Any ideas what might have happened to them? It doesn't say. But I think a reasonable guess is that their leaders who spoke the word of God to them faced persecution and were probably killed for their faith. And so when he says, consider the outcome of their way of life, there are probably some in that church who are saying, I've been considering the outcome of their way of life. That's why I'm wanting to go away from Jesus at this point. But instead he says, no, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Continue to trust God, following Jesus wherever that leads, even if it means to persecution, even if it leads to death. I mentioned 2 Timothy 3.16. says that um, for everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When we unite ourselves with Jesus, it separates us, takes us out of the way of the rest of the world. And as we read through these things, you've probably noticed that's very different than the way the rest of the world operates. And when we start to live this way, we may find ourselves facing some friction from those around us and from the culture we live in. The question we have to ask is this. Do we want a godly life in Christ Jesus? Or do we want to avoid persecution? Because however we answer that question will determine how we live our lives when those come together. And so if what you want most of all is to avoid persecution, you say, well, then sometimes I'll live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And then, you know, at work, maybe things will be a little different. Or maybe when I'm around that group of friends, things will be a little different. Because what we really want is to avoid persecution. But if we've understood everything the rest of the book of Hebrews has said, if Jesus really is who he says he is, if he has really done what it says that he has done, if he has provided the way to real and lasting life with God forever, 
then wanting to live a godly life in Christ Jesus should be the number one thing we desire. Above all else, persecution, come what may. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The people that this was written to had seen how their leaders had lived, the life that they had in Jesus as they continued to follow him and to trust him in everything. They saw the suffering they went through, but they also saw the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. They saw the fruit of their labors in the people that had come to faith through them. They saw how Jesus had worked in them. And the author is saying to them, that same Jesus is working the same way in you today. And he doesn't change. Everything else changes, he doesn't change. He's going to be the same to forever. Which means, even those of us 2,000 years later, the message for us is still, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. We can trust him not only for the past, but we can trust him today. And we know it's not going to change. We can trust him tomorrow too. That we can have life in him, with him, that's different than the rest of the world. And it may bring the disgrace of the rest of the world. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let us worship him with all of our lives, living godly lives in Christ Jesus from now on. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.